0: Welcome to Coffee with Kupke, a production of St. Paul Inside the Walls. Here on Coffee with Kupke, we grab a cup of coffee, at least we're claiming this is coffee. We sit with Monsignor Kupke, Raymond Kupke, the pastor of St. Anthony's in Hawthorne, professor at Immaculate Conception Seminary, diocesan archivist. We sit with Monsignor Kupke to delve into the history of Catholicism in the Diocese of Patterson, My name is Father Paul Manning. I am the vicar for evangelization for the Diocese of Patterson, and here I am with Monsignor Kupke. So grab your cup of coffee, and let's jump right in. I'm going to take a sip. So welcome, Monsignor Kupke. Father Paul. It's hard to believe we are on episode 16. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and we're. I think in, who
1: thought Patterson would be so interesting, I know, right? And
0: I think we're not even uh, halfway through the book yet. We're on, we're on chapter six of our book, uh, your book, Living Stones. And before we uh, dive into chapter six, I just want to uh, give a, a little uh, glimpse at something that will be coming down the road. We talked quite some time ago about an episode called Weird Diocese of Patterson, right. and it sounds to me like we might be ready to talk about some of the diocese
1: weirdness. Strange anomalies. <laughs> yes.
0: So I just want you to be uh, looking out for that. That'll probably drop uh, in a couple of episodes, the Weird Diocese of Patterson.
1: Um, Before we start, I just want to make a shout out, if I can. Sure. To three of our regular listeners, okay. to uh, Mike Tisko up in Kinelon, to Ruth Necco in Morristown, who received one of our mugs as a Christmas present because she's such a fan. Wow, that's great. And to Taga Horn, who watches us in Oslo, Norway. My goodness. How did he find us? We're <laughs> famous.
0: <laughs> Does he have a connection to the diocese?
1: Uh, yeah, through me. Okay. Yeah. I actually have a photo of him watching us in Norway.
0: Wow, why didn't you bring that and we'll 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 put it on on the you know up on the screen. Um, that's one place that's on my bucket list in Norway.
1: yeah, I've never been either. Yeah,
0: and it's got an interesting Catholic history. Right? it does yeah, it does. i My mother had a classmate who what, his name was Olaf Waring. They called him Ozy Waring, who went back to Norway and became a priest for the Diocese of Oslo and ended
1: up being the vicar general
0: of the diocese, which I think had a total of 12 priests
1: or something. Right. Uh, it, has, it has doubled in size since then because of uh, Ukrainian and Polish immigration after the fall of communism.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, the ch- title of uh, the chapter that we are is starting today is called the dawn of a new age 1901 to 1937 so um we're we're looking at the turn of the 19th to the 20th century right roughly uh the time between the 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 turn of the century and the the beginning of World War II right um i was just curious uh, to know why you call this the dawn of a new age.
1: Because in many ways it was, you know, and certainly religiously for our area, um, it was a, a beginning of a change in the pattern of religious life in the three counties. You know, mm. Years later, I, I had the opportunity to interview Archbishop Thomas Boland, who was the second Bishop of Patterson, but perhaps more importantly, for historical reasons, was Chancellor of the Newark Diocese when Patterson was created. In
0: 1937, yeah.
1: So I asked him point blank, I said, why did they make us a diocese? And he said, well, the sense was that everything was growing out in the western part of the Newark Diocese, there were so many religious orders moving into the area. And he said it was felt that the, the interests and the energies of the Newark diocese were so heavily invested in the cities mm. that somebody had better get out there into the western part to supervise what was happening because so much was happening.
0: Yeah. Actually, one of, one of the sections in this chapter uh, uh, talks about the influx of religious, religious communities.
1: Yeah. When you look at Mars County and Sussex County from the sense of a religious community, uh, rolling hills, big mansions up for sale <laughs> after the depression yeah. and close access to New York and the rest of the world, you know, yeah, it, it was a no brainer.
0: Yeah. Um, is our diocese unique in the, in the numbers of religious communities that, that ended up being here?
1: Yes. And, and there are some dioceses that do not have a single religious order priest in the whole diocese. And, and, and uh, we at various times have had hundreds. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I once mean, pointed. unique in the nation? Yeah, I once pointed out to Bishop O'Dimer that Mars Township, which is the municipality that encircles Mars Town, Town, yeah had more religious than some of the dioceses in the Midwest. Mm. You know, because within the boundaries of the township, you have the Jesuits, you have St. Mary's Abbey in Del Barton, the College of St. Elizabeth, you have the Filipinis, you have the Carmelite, you know, all of that is in the township. Of Morris, so at yeah. one point they had like three abbots, 200 <laughs> priests, you know, 800 nuns. And a partridge all, in a pear tree. Uh, there's a legend that um, the politicians in Marstown became concerned about compensation in particular, that all these Democratic nuns from the city were <laughs> going to change the voting pattern of the local elections <laughs> by voting. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, we we are unusual in the sense that we have so many...
0: Now, this is an aside, but you uh, uh, interviewed Archbishop Boland. Yes. Now, did he
1: go, go somewhere else after Newark? He became Archbishop. No, he died as Archbishop Emeritus of Newark. Oh, he retired.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And when did, when did you interview him? For what reason?
1: We were putting together a, a uh, presentation, I think it was in 1976, in anticipation of the American Bicentennial, Yes. So I had the the chance to uh, talk with him. Talk yeah. with him. Um, it's an interesting commentary on how much has changed since then. You know, ten years later, when I was writing the history of the diocese, and I went to access that tape. Oh, the the technology that we had used in '76 was so obsolete. Man. That I had to go into Manhattan to a company that specializes in obsolete technology to have it.
0: Okay. Transfer. Yeah, it was probably a cassette tape. Yeah. 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 Interesting. So I noticed in the footnotes. I, I've gotten in the habit of going to the footnotes early on. The whole stories <laughs> in the footnotes. I, I noticed in the footnotes a, a shift here uh, in in the book in that, as far as I can tell. This is the first chapter in which you include anecdotal information from people you actually interviewed. So, so you're interviewing people with connections yeah. to the, the, the content of this chapter. Is that right?
1: Yeah. You're starting to deal with living memory.
0: Right. And so um, in, in particular, I uh, noted Albin Stolaric. Right. John, John Labash.
1: Was John Labash was Dennis Hogan's sister's father-in-law.
0: Oh, okay. Father Dennis Hogan was right. a priest of our diocese, and then a uh, uh, Stephen Matthias. So you interviewed, interviewed these people the who were connected to
1: to, characters. The, to the great blow-up in Saint Mary's Slovak parish in Passaic. Yeah.
0: Okay, so we're going to talk a little mm-hmm. bit about that. Yeah. What was it like interviewing these folks? Were, were,
1: were was was their recollection? trustworthy? Yes. And um, Labash in particular, you know, I had known him somewhat through my classmate, Father Hogan. You know, we had been at family things together, but I had no idea how he was connected. His He ran what was then the Slovak funeral home in Passaic. Okay. And because he and his father were undertakers, they were one of the only ones that had driver's licenses. Oh. You know, cars in Passaic in the 30s and 20s. Yeah. So he, as a 19-year-old, drove the priest who was causing the uprising in Passaic down to meet with Bishop Walsh and Newark. Oh my, interesting. You know, and he had a whole recollection of the whole, <laughs> you know, I just sat there and wrote as fast as I could.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because, uh, uh, um, these these men that you interviewed were, I think one of them was in his 80s when you were interviewing yeah, they, yeah, so they, they didn't last much no, longer. No. Yeah. No. That's great that you got to
1: talk and, to and them. And subsequently, just in the past month, the article that I wrote about that has been picked up by the Polish National Catholic Church because this is one of their parishes and yes. you know, it's a different angle. When did you write an article about this? About 25 years ago. Oh, it took them a while to find it. Well, they couldn't find it, and oh. they finally wrote to me. They knew it existed, but they couldn't find it. So they wrote to me and said, you know, do you have a copy? Huh. We may, maybe we should look at that again. Yeah. Uh. But the other thing that changes with this period is uh, I became aware that the 20th century was not being recorded. Oh, that it was—you know—it it was easier to find out stuff from the 19th century because of diaries and records, and but as technology was moving along, people were not recording things in the same way. So I kind of made a conscious effort to include more anecdotal material in the footnotes because I figured. These will never be preserved if I don't write them down here somewhere. Yeah, you know, they'll just yeah. be lost for the future. Um, when I was writing, you know, one—I remember—I tried to find out who the first Z R E was in the Paterson Diocese. You know, I, yes. I was going to include a, just a sentence about that as a transition. You know, it took me weeks. To, find, to find out who the first one was, and he was still alive Oh, in Maine as diocesan family life coordinator and was unaware of the fact that his hiring by the two parishes in Marstown was the first time a layperson had ever been hired. For and who, who was it? I forget his name, but it's oh. in the book. Yeah, we'll get to that probably but, in a later chapter. I, as, as that stuff kind of started to happen, I, I, I said I better write down everything I've got here, yeah, so that some of this example could endure uh, to the future. Yeah.
0: So Brian Hansberger, who's on staff here, uh, made an interesting comment to, today t- to me. He said, I, "I one of the things that I really enjoy about coffee with Cupkey is the transparency um, and the the the, he said, historians are concerned about the facts and not so concerned about how those things are necessarily interpreted or, or what, what the reaction is. They're presenting truth, the, the truth. And Monsignor Kupke is um, kind of undaunted in presenting the truth of the Diocese of Patterson. Uh, and it's refreshing, he said. Good. And also it's We'll see what he thinks
1: after after weird New Jersey. (laughs) Yeah, right.
0: So, I wanted to uh, just briefly. One of the things that is happening is New Jersey is growing by leaps and bounds. In this period, you say the population doubles, yeah, and the growth of the population in New Jersey, the rate of it outpaces the growth in New York and Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah, well, you know, just a entity like the George Washington Bridge you know, turned Bergen County, which at that point was rather small, yeah. you know, into a bedroom community for New York city. And, you know, now it's the biggest county in the state. Yeah. Uh, so that wow. was going on as all this was taking place. Yeah.
0: I wanted to um, read the first couple of sentences from your second paragraph, because I thought it just captured the, the, the sense of this period. New Jersey's population growth was accompanied by growth in trusts, monopolies, and political corruption, and a seemingly impregnable intertwining of political machines and corporate interests. Despite the state's unsavory reputation, the early decades of the 20th century witnessed a flowering of the progressive movement in New Jersey— yeah. So maybe just comment on those couple of sentences.
1: Well, New Jersey was, you know, I mean, when people look at our state model, the garden state, you yeah. know, they, they look at us and say, where are the gardens? You know, uh, this is when New Jersey is tr- changing into the industrial monolith that yeah. it has become. And the research, uh, the pharmaceuticals, all of that is be- taking place so, yeah, yeah. and changing, particularly northern New Jersey. Into a whole different animal, but um, you know politics and human nature—it all intertwines well, I, there. If there's if there's growth and money, yeah. <laughs> yeah,
0: there's bound to be some shenanigans as well. Exactly. I, I felt like in many ways that that still is a description of New Jersey today. Yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, in some of yeah, the, it, some of the cities. Yeah,
1: I, I was thinking of that when I was. Uh, watching a show the other day you know uh, there's a reason why Bruce Springsteen is called the boss if he were in some other state he'd be the king the duke but in new jersey we have <laughs> bosses yeah that's right
0: that's right um so in in that in the, these first couple of paragraphs you talk about um catholicism uh, in new jersey politics and and one of the things I had forgotten is that President Wilson comes mm-hmm. out of New Jersey. and that The he, governor
1: of New Jersey. Yeah,
0: and he had some uh, uh, Catholic uh, staff people, a private secretary, I His think. His
1: personal secretary was James Tumulty, yes. an Irish Catholic. Wilson himself was, you know.
0: Not crazy about Catholics, I think. Yeah,
1: he was not a, not a rabid anti-Catholic, but he had that reserve that, you know. Yeah, yeah. But um, he had an Irish Catholic. Uh, personal secretary, James Tumulty. And after he was elected, the powers that be in Washington...
0: Said you can't bring them?
1: Said basically you should get rid of him because it would be unseemly to have a Catholic that close to the seat of power. Wow. And to his credit, Wilson ignored them and brought Tumulty. But this was a, a point where Catholics had kind of been almost... Pushed back under the glass ceiling, you know. Uh, you know, the period between the two Roosevelts, between Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt, is the longest period in American history when there was no Catholic in the cabinet. You know, mm. Catholics were not given federal judgeships. Interesting. It was it was kind of a an anti-Catholic moment. It, it was yeah. all right for them to be mayors or congressmen, maybe even a senator occasionally, but. Not the highest levels. Okay, you know, so
0: well, I have William Hughes, a Catholic senator at this time. Right. So I was curious, how how long had Catholics been in the Senate or in the Congress?
1: There've always been one or two. There was one in the first Congress. You know. Oh yes, right. John right uh, Charles right. Carroll. Yeah, 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 was the senator from Maryland in the first yeah. Congress? But um, it has slowly been changing, but not. As thoroughly, so you know, today there are 27 Catholics in the Senate. Okay. But, um, you know, back then that was a relatively rare, and usually only from the northeastern states. You know, somebody like a Kennedy in Massachusetts would somehow break through and get elected on a statewide level. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So one of the more interesting is uh, Mary Norton, who... You know, i don't know enough about her but somehow she broke through several ceilings um, she was the democratic congresswoman for hudson county and she was the first chair of a congressional committee that was female mm. she like represented jersey city for 25 years in the frank hague you know democratic machine down there and you know, she was Catholic. She was a woman. She was all the things you shouldn't be. Somehow, <laughs> what years? What years? Um, she was there like from 25 to 1950, okay. something like that. wow, wow, interesting. I think she was the first Democratic woman, if I remember this, who was elected without having like succeeded her deceased husband or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, on her own right, yeah.
0: So, um, gosh, we're kind of all over the map. We have a long way to go through this chapter, but I just— uh wanted to ask about uh anti-german sentiment as a result of world war 1 and then you know uh 1917 yeah uh and what 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 brought this to mind was that you make mention that L- long valley the name long, is by v- you. right long valley is the result of a name change
1: yeah from German Valley, yeah. So, to- and also in the Metuchen diocese, what the town that we called Oldwick today used to be Germantown.
0: Got it. Yeah. So it was pretty strong. The same. It was
1: very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, the German parishes, Saint Boniface, Holy Trinity, uh, stopped using German like on a dime because it was it was just Being too dangerous, un-American. too American, too yeah. un-American, right?
0: Yeah. So um, I. I- one of the things that I've learned as a result of Living Stones is the is the strong German influence in the in the origins of the Catholic Church in our diocese, and I'm wondering if if um, some of the the, the German uh, influence has been downplayed over the years as a result of World War One. I. I, it just
1: doesn't seem like people are conscious of that. Well, the Germans. After the Irish are the original uh, immigrants you know the German immigration starts well before the Civil War, yeah, so by the time you get to World War I, many of these are second and third generation Americans. Okay. Um, the German immigration continues uh, what the war does is to put a damper on german culture got it um, and and, and World certainly war II would do the certainly same. in terms of um Clerical influence in our diocese. You know the Franciscans that serve in our diocese really come from Germany originally. Yeah, the Sisters of Christian Charity, Charity. Yes. the Abbey in Morristown starts out yeah, as a German. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what's going on in Germany at the end of the 19th century with Bismarck and the anti-Catholic May Laws? This pushes a lot of you know immigration of clerics into. America, and that that uh, works to the benefit of Patterson New Jersey
0: well when we uh, continue in our next episode we'll we'll really jump into the 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 meat of this chapter uh but we better conclude at the moment now let's leave it there i want all of you who are listening or watching to make sure that you keep an eye out or an ear out for the next episode of Coffee with Kupke. In order to stay on top of new releases, make sure you follow or subscribe wherever you're listening. And if you are on YouTube, please do drop a like and hit the bell for notifications. While you're at it, Make sure to check out the other shows produced by the diocese. Those shows are Beyond the Beacon, hosted by Bishop Kevin Sweeney and Jay Agnish, our Director of Communications, and The Paul Street Journal, hosted by Brian Hansberger and Freddie Garcia. I want to give a special thanks to Joe Genexi, our sound and visual engineer, Caitlin Ferrari, who's involved in pre- and post-production, and Freddie Garcia, who's helping out with this podcast in addition to doing his own. With all that said, I just want to thank you for joining us in uh, Coffee with Kupke. Keep making Catholic history in the Diocese of Patterson.